Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to Swarfcast. Before we start, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love the show, please rate it and write a review on your podcast app or tell somebody about it. It really makes a difference for us and we'd appreciate it. Okay, on with the show. And you tell your employees, here's keys, here's the code to the building, here's the work that needs to be done, you get it done. I don't care when you're here, I don't care what hours you show up, I don't care if you show up at all, as long as this work gets out the door and we hit the numbers, we're good to go. This is Swarfcast, I'm Noah Graff. Today's podcast is part one of an interview we did with David Wynn. CFO of ABF Engineering and Machining, a third-generation screw machine shop in South Fulton, Tennessee. After earning an MBA, David joined his family business 17 years ago. His stated mission is to run a machining business composed of old cam screw machines as though it were a tech company. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. I am thrilled to have Dave Wynn, CFO of ABF Engineering and Machining in South Fulton, Tennessee. Welcome to the show, Dave. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. So first, I want to get a little bit of your background and um, learn about your company. So first, tell us what your company is and how long it's been around, etc. Give us, give us the brief introduction to it. Uh, it's ABF Engineering and Machining. Um, we're in South Fulton, Tennessee. We've been at this location since 1989. Um, had a previous version of the business that uh, um, got morphed into this, but basically been a business since about 1976 and uh, started out brown and sharp screw machines. Uh, my dad and my grandfather started the company. My grandfather worked for Teletype in uh, Chicago. And they wanted to get out of the city and they uh, got a brown and sharp number two and hauled it down on an old rickety trailer and bought an old, what essentially a rundown barn. Uh, it was so small, they had to cut holes in the walls to put bars in the machines. And they'd go outside and in the winter, they'd, they'd go warm their hands by the coal stove and go outside and shove a bar in a machine and then come back in and run parts. And, uh, you know, we've been around for quite a while. And, That's why they went to Tennessee. Uh, yeah, yeah, to get out of the city. And so uh, they, you know, they live north of the city, a place called the Venetian Village. And, you know, the city was encroaching on them then. And and my family, my grandparents were both from Tennessee and they wanted to get back to Tennessee. And that was just the place. 
That makes sense because my dad, I told my dad the company and he's like, they're in Chicago. And I was like, no, these guys are in Tennessee. So maybe he's been around for a long time. <laughs> Over 50 years in the business. So that, that must have been why. Okay, so your grandfather started the company and your father got in. The The company was started in 1979 or before that? Uh, I, th- I think it was around 76 is when they came down. 76. And it was my dad, my grandfather, and my grandmother. They all came down together to start the business. My dad was a young man. He was in his early 20s when they started. Okay. So they ran Brown and Sharps mostly. And now you guys are clearly, you've, you've graduated past those well actually uh <laughs> we still run brownies <laughs> still have about 15 brownies on the floor uh i've got a couple swiss machines a couple haas lays a cnc mill and that but i'd still say you know the, the bulk of what we do a, a big portion of it, at least a little over half of it still on brownies and uh still looking for new brownie work uh the brown and sharp still probably the best machine you know wendy rogers said the number two brown and sharp was the uh, most productive machine ever made well, yeah, I, I, and, and, you know, I, we had prepared for this interview. That's why I, I set, set that question up. I wasn't trying to mock Brown and Sharps, but, um, go ahead. Everybody mocks them. <laughs> so you have 15, your website said 50, but you've gone down to 15. Yeah, so um, we used to have 50. I guess I need to update the website, but we still have over 50. I think we have close to 100, um, but I have 15 that are actually in line running parts. It um, Before we got into the Swiss, we had a lot of uh, very complicated multi-operation parts in which we built brown and sharp cells to do, and we might have four to five brownies in one cell running one part because it had so many ops and turns, and, uh, and then Later on, when we got into the Swiss and the volumes went down on some of that work, we started morphing more of that and, and, and bringing it into the Swiss world and then turning the brownies back into what they really were made to do, which is that good mid-volume production. Interesting. Well, for the people, you know, there's, I think there's a lot of people listening to this podcast that aren't even really familiar with Brown and Sharps. How, how did, just do a quick explanation of replacing the cams on the Brown and Sharps. And what do you mean by a cell? You had several operations and they would just connect to one another on the same part, work together. Uh, so how we did this, the Brown and Sharp is just, uh, if you, everybody on the podcast is familiar with the CNC lathe, it works a whole lot like a CNC lathe. It has a turret, has tools in it. And uh, you move and I'll talk in CNC speak since a lot of modern people say it, but you move back and forth on a Z axis. Uh, There is no X axis on a brown and sharp turret, but you get your X axis from your slides where the um, what comes in with a brown and sharp that makes it so productive is that you can be working with your turret but then also working with other tools simultaneously. Um, even the old school brown and sharps, the old G series, and even way back at the double belt system, um, you had a vertical slide most of the time and two cross slides. And even if you just had the two cross slides, you could be forming, parting off while you're working with an in-working tool. And uh, it allows you to overlap a lot of operations. Um, it's a very rigid machine. The power of the cross slide coming off a cam is extreme, um, you know, a night, we know Mr. Greg Knight, and he uh, had a system years ago that had uh, servo cam, mm-hmm. and the uh, the servo that they had to have to drive a form tool 
on a cross slide for a Browning was huge because and if I, I'm not 100% sure I'm right on the facts on this, but I think it's 4,000 pounds per square inch is generated by a cross slide cam on a Brown and Sharp. And so you can do a lot of work in a hurry on a Brown and Sharp cross slide coming off the cam. And the same thing is true from the turret. Um, you can push tools really hard on a brown and sharp. You can do a lot of things that you can't do on a CNC lathe just from the sheer horsepower of it. Because the nature of CNC is that the more, basically, the more RPMs you get on the motor, the, the higher the voltage you send into the motor, the more horsepower you got, unless it's geared somehow. And I think some of the more modern systems have alleviated some of that to a bit. But a brown and sharp is a five horsepower motor, but everything's gear driven. So you get five horsepowers in your cut, no matter what you're doing. So if you're going at 30 RPMs on a, on a really big tap, or if you're going at 5,000 RPMs on a little brass job, you get that full five horsepower on a number two. And uh, that's where it's really different than a lot of the modern systems where, you know, um, especially back a few years ago, you had some of the little mills that uh, had, you know, two and a quarter horsepower motors and five horsepower motors. But then when you're going at low RPMs, they, they couldn't hardly do anything. It would stall out because they didn't have enough horsepower to drive the tool. And that's where a gear system really comes in. So why, why a Brown and Sharp rather than a, say a Davenport or a Wickman? I mean, I know there, you can buy a Brown and Sharp for two grand or something. I mean, that's one reason, but what's the advantage of a Brown and Sharp over a different kind of cam screw machine? So Davenport's, um, in my, you know, in my world, when I look at screw machines, so you've got like your, your Brown and Sharp type screw machines, like your Brown and Sharp, your index, and even like your, um, the, the fixed, um, Trob systems where they weren't, they didn't have a, a movable guide bushing. And then you've got like a Swiss machine, which the CNC and Swiss screw machine done on cam are basically the same machine, just one CNC, one's cam. And you've got multi-spindle machines like your Acme's, Whitman's, uh, Warner's and things like that, Greenleaf's. And then you've got Davenport's. I don't even consider those a multi-spindle screw <laughs> machine. They're their own animal. And, um, and so it, to me, that's a whole different universe. Davenport's are almost like a specialty machine you build for each job and they take a long time to set up. I mean, you know, even really good Davenport, uh, guys generally would take tremendously longer to set up a job, especially a basic job as you would on a Brown and Sharp. And, and that just comes from the nature of multi-spindle. Um, you know, at least the way I look at it, they're more complex. I mean, you're running five, six, eight, 12 bars at once. Right. And, uh, we're only dealing with one. Uh, we don't have concentricity issues like you have on a multi-spindle machine because I've only got to drive one bar. Oh, okay. So, so that's an advantage of the Brown and Sharp. Yeah, it's a big advantage. Uh, you don't have to shave on a Brown and Sharp because uh, I've only got one spindle to worry about. So when I set a form, it's set. Uh, you know, and, and shave tools can do some wonderful things, but I, I don't have to, but I can shave if I need it. But most of the time you can get the finish that you need and, and the roundness and everything else on a brown and sharp by just using a single form tool. And so that's some of the benefits. Um, one thing, you know, on a Davenport, you've got, and I'm not a Davenport guy, so I don't know a lot about this. So there may be some Davenport guys cringing when I say this, but from what I understand, you got at least 10 cams, you got five on the end tools and you got five on the cross slides on a Brownie at worst, I've got three mm -hmm. and maybe four if I'm using verticals. And if I got a crazy hard job, five, if I'm doing, you know, two verticals, but most Brown and Sharp jobs are two to three cams tops. And so it's less cams. Um, to change. There's a lot less going on. You know, um, in my opinion, they're simpler in some respects to set your tools and everything because you don't have to worry about, um, 
all the different things going on between the operations and stuff as much as you do on a multi. Now, on the flip side of it, a brown and sharp is all about timing where a multi the timing's built into the machine so uh we we have to worry about timing issues more than like a multi-spindle where they're indexing and and all their uh everything else that happens at, at the end when you do a when the bars move it's like a tool change on a cnc lathe that uh all that happens is built into the machine where on a brown and sharp we have to tell the machine what to do because each tool comes individually so that does make it a bit more complex you were saying to me that you uh, you see yourself running your screw machine business as um, like a tech company, and you you brought up creating the cams for the Brown and Sharp as almost like um, you know creating a a program. Ex- explain what you mean by that. So for me, you know, uh, creating a cam set for Brown and Sharp is no different than writing a CNC program. Um, the only difference that I can see is that the, you know, the lead time to get a cam produced, whether you produce it in-house or pay somebody to produce it. And if you make a mistake, um, you've got, you know, longer downtime from a mistake on a cam. But basically, all I'll set of cams is, is a program. Um, you know, the benefit to a CNC is I can, if I make a mistake, I can go change the program right now. Uh, but when you really think about it back in the old days, uh, with the Brown and Sharp that made you a better layout person because you had to have it right before you sent it off to get the cams cut. So, you know, all we do is design a program and that's the cam and that's all the timing of the cross slides and, and the in working tools and everything moving in and out. And then at the time you're, you're building your job, you know, deciding what spindle speeds you're going to have, depending on if it's a two speed or four speed machine and how many speeds you're going to use and, and how that's all going to work. And, uh, so to me, it's no different than designing a program for a Swiss machine. They're both screw machines. They're both different animals, but basically it's just building a program to make the part that you want to make. Listeners. Do you have an idea for a future episode of Swarfcast? Or is your company interested in advertising on the Swarfcast podcast? If so, please send us an email at swarfcastpodcast at gmail.com. That's swarfcastpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, give me a little bit of background on yourself. You grew up in the family business. Were you working in the shop in the summer or after school or? So I'm actually an interesting case. Um, I was not around the business at all until after 18 years of age. My dad and myself were uh, in a different state and uh, we, you know, I grew up in Missouri and he was a software developer and I had no contact, had never even stepped foot in the shop until after I was 18 years of age and um, came into it enjoyed it, worked there a little bit. I was holding two jobs at the time, going to school and uh, worked at the shop some. Then there became an opportunity for me to work full-time at the shop. And I transitioned there. And then kind of when I was in school, I've got a degree in finance economics and a, and a minor in accounting, which is before I, I've actually got a, essentially a double major in accounting because they, they didn't have a double major when I went in there. And then, and then later on they did, and I didn't want to change, you know, where were my you in school? Class schedule, University of Tennessee. Okay. And, um, 
And so I did that. And then right after I graduated, uh, I went on to the MBA program and finished my MBA up right afterwards and just kind of blew through school. And while I was there, my intention was to get my MBA and then get my CFA, which is Chartered Financial Analyst, and move on to, uh, you know, work for like a mutual fund company or, or some, some other uh, company in the finance sector doing something with financial analysts. And um, I just kind of through the time being in school, working there, and then even more so toward the end of my school term, fell in love with the business and always enjoyed it, always liked it, but then started to see, you know, that was something I wanted to do forever. And when I graduated school, I just moved into the business and that's what I did. Um, and how old are you now? I'm 35. 35. Okay. So how many years have you been working there? Uh, let's see. I've been there about 17 years. Almost, I think it'll be 17 years coming up uh, this year. Wow. Okay. And so you were working at, by this point, your father went into the business. So you're, okay. So your father's father, he started the business and then your father was working as a software engineer. And then how did your father get into the business? Um. It, that's a long story and probably for another day, but basically okay. when we came back, <laughs> we, we jumped into the business and, uh, and came back. He, you know, my grandfather was getting older and we kind of started getting back into it and doing some things. So you got into it at the same time as your dad? Yeah. Yeah. We both jumped back in at the same time. But did he have background kind of growing up in the business? Uh, yes. So he was there when the business started in his early 20s. And then he was there until he was 28 years of age before he moved on um, to do other things. Mm -hmm. So he was there about somewhere between seven and eight years. And so you worked at the same time as your father in the business. And then uh, eventually you transitioned into basically running the company. Yeah, so we went on, and it's been somewhere around four or five years ago now. After I graduated from the MBA program, I was out for about three or four years. And my grandfather was getting older and decided he was ready to get out. So my dad and I bought the business. And then that's when things really turned because we started taking the business the direction that we wanted to go. Mm -hmm. And uh, not that necessarily that my grandfather, you know, was a hindrance or anything, but it's just that it was his business. And out of respect, we didn't make drastic changes until it was our business. And once it became our business, things changed dramatically. And that was just, you know, purely a different vision for what we had for the company. Okay, so I'm curious what what is the vision? How did how did the company change? Um, so one of the things that we changed is uh, how we go about our business and how we think about things. Um, you know, having vision, having uh, core values, having a mission, and establishing those things. Looking for people that fit the culture more than people that have the talent. Mm. Um, you're far better looking for somebody that fits your culture and your business than you are looking for people with talent. Because if you just look for talent, you're going to have a bunch of prima donnas that don't necessarily fit the culture. And if you got a bunch of star players on a team, you don't really have a team. You got a bunch of star players playing against each other. And so what we looked for was the people that fit the culture that we were trying to establish in our business and bring those people in so that we could have a true team atmosphere. Because anytime you've got something like that, Two people that work together as a team will accomplish far more than the two people separately. And the same thing multiplies as you go on. 
there's almost an exponential growth curve when you get something together and a team jives and you start to see what goals and things that you can accomplish as a team. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I'm sure you have a there's a lot of energy and when you have the unity. So how do you find these people to fit into your culture? Is it difficult? It's very difficult. Um, and, and we're still refining that. I, I can't say that I've got a true strategy in place yet. Um, several of the people I have now, I, I will attribute to nothing other than divine intervention for how I got them because <laughs> I, I, there's no way that it was something to do with me. Um, so it, it's just, it's something you refine over time. Um, you know, there's a, there's a couple of people that I listen to um, and, and, you know, kind of see as mentors and, and and they do some crazy things like interview 14, 15, 16 times before you get a job. Uh, that's ridiculous. A lot of testing, a lot of analysis of people and checking culture. And, and, and I actually have started, you know, I used to think that was ridiculous. And I've started to see the value in that because you think about what it costs you to hire someone. Um, you know, I've heard a quote one time said that every time they made a bad hire, it cost them $50,000 every time, because by the time you figure lost salary, lost training, lost hours, lost productivity in the, in the search for new people, um, it, you know, it just really slams you. And so that's true. But, but does it really, does interviewing somebody 14 times make a difference in making sure you've. Well, I'm going to quote this person and, and say what they said, but uh, basically, it, it, if they're a donkey, I guarantee you in 14 interviews, I'm going to hear a hee-haw. Yeah. And, well, and, that's, and, and that's one of those things is, is you're trying to weed out people that don't fit what you're trying to do. They're, you know, It's not to say that they're necessarily bad people, but the way we work and the way we do things is different than a lot of other people. And, and you've got to be able to fit into that. And if you don't plug into what we do, you're not going to work out. You're not going to be happy at our business and we're not going to be happy with you. And it's going to be good for neither one of us because we're, we're a crazy bunch. I mean, you know, if you think about today in a manufacturing environment and, and you tell your employees, here's keys, here's the code to the building, here's the work that needs to be done. You get it done. I don't care when you're here. I don't care what hours you sh show up. I don't care if you show up at all. As long as this work gets out the door and we hit the numbers, we're good to go. Wow. And if you tell a group of people that and then you, you can, I mean, most people look at me like I'm a space alien when I talk about that. And, and I'll, I'll admit that, you know, it's kind of funny. You give people that much freedom and they still generally show up like you normally would expect. So that's why you're saying you, you run it like a tech company. Yeah, that's exactly why, because we look at things differently. So uh, I don't, you know, it's kind of hard to explain because it, it's a culture that's hard to get into. It's a culture that's hard for most people to understand. So and there's a respectful nature about it that I don't really care if you show up late every day as long as you're getting your work done. But then you don't want somebody that's taking advantage of it to the point that they're hindering the team. And so mm -hmm. it's hard to find people that understand that. So I've got people that show up late regularly, but they're always hitting their numbers. They're always doing what they're having to do. And they're always making sure that the team as a whole, not just their individual things, but the team as a whole is performing as it needs to be. And that doesn't bother me. But anytime where your absences or something start to hinder the team, 
that becomes a problem. And, and so it's difficult to find people because too many people in this world today will take advantage of a situation like this and then, you know, basically never show up or they only show up when it's convenient for them and they're not really in it for the team. And so you can't have a selfish mindset to work for a company like mine. You have to be in it for the team. Yeah. But then again, you also have all that freedom. Oh, my daughter has a recital tonight. I can't work at the second shift, you know, and, and it's fine with me. If you want to come in late tonight, come in early tomorrow or whatever. You do whatever it takes to get the job done. And I'm not worried about it. And another thing, we don't I don't set schedules per se. So we've got a couple guys that's supposed to work second shift and I got a couple guys supposed to work first shift. But I don't care if they swap shifts. I don't care if they split shifts. I don't care if second shift guys say, well, we can't come in at three today. We're coming at midnight. So does everybody make a salary then? No, everybody doesn't make a salary. They're all um, they're all on hourly rate. And that has more to do with legal connotations of salary than it does anything. Um, but uh, it, everybody is open. So like, like a lot of companies limit overtime. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you work 100 hours overtime every week. It doesn't bother me. You can work as much as you want or basically as little as you want, as long as the goals get met. And, uh, you know, I will say that generally you're going to have to work 30 to 36. It's just like a salary position. You're going to have to work 30 to 36 hours to hit the goals. That's just part of it. That's the general nature of the business because you got to have some time on the machines. But, you know, I've got a couple guys uh, that never work any overtime and I got a couple guys that work 60 hours a week every week. It's just a matter in, in, in that system, too. It's not about looking for your next raise. You can work for as much money as you want to work for. Now, and, you know, we pay for, um, you know, learning that everything we pay is skills based and, and there are varied salaries and varied rates and depending on how good you are and how much you know. And anybody can get anywhere at any time because all you have to do is perform and understand what you're supposed to do and you can make more money. But then also as an individual, let's say you don't have the capability to learn whatever it is to make the next step in your job to make the next pay level, you can earn as much money as you want by working more hours and, and getting time and a half is nothing to sneeze at. But do you, I, maybe I just don't totally understand how the operation works. I mean, if you have people going more, is that necessarily going to get more work done? Uh, going more as in like working more hours? Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like an irony here because you're talking about making your goals and you don't care how often, how, how many hours they come, yet you clearly reward the amount of hours they're there uh, because you pay by the hour and it sounds like that you don't really have the option. There's There's sort of two things pulling at each other there to me. So I guess in a way it is, but to me it really isn't. So, you know, um, you could just as easily. And, and I mean, I say this as a, you know, if we have plenty of work, I mean, there, there could come a time when I tell everybody, look, we can't work overtime anymore because I've ran out of work, but that's mm-hmm. never happened to me yet. I mean, I'm a contract manufacturer and, and, and a friend of mine said this best, Jim Preston said that, you know, we live our lives six weeks at a time. And that's the truth. I mean, you basically got six weeks work and then you're totally out and it always seems to keep coming. But, you know, that's hmm. just the way life is. Interesting. And so when you're when you're a job shop, you live your life six weeks at a time. Um, I've been running this way for several years now and I've never had to go back on it. And I'm not saying I won't. I mean, you know, I may wake up six weeks from now and have no work and tell everybody, look, you know, we're shut down for Christmas and I hope that never happens and that could happen. But, um, 
to me, it, we've kind of been lucky and we tend to have a pipeline of work and, you know, there's some people that want to work and do more and achieve more and that's fine. And so my system rewards people for those that want to put in the time to better themselves. Uh-huh. So if, to learn if you're more. willing, yeah, if you're willing to learn more, better yourself, increase your skills. Um, I wish I had it more systemized than I do now, but the, essentially the ultimate goal is to be almost like a video game that you level up, uh, that we have it so well mapped out that you know exactly what you got to do to level up and you know what skills you need to level up. Uh, there's a company called Boston Centerless. They did a presentation at the PMPA Tech Conference about four or five years ago, and they have an awesome system about how their operators level up and how their setup men level up. And uh, mm. it's really cool. And, and that, that's kind of a system that we're looking to establish in our company in the future is something similar to that and maybe a little bit deeper. But you, that when you come in day one, you know what's expected of you and you know what you got to do to get to the next level and you know how much more money. And so the only limiting factor is yourself. Now, I will say this, that in a system like this, that typically the people that excel are people that are putting in more time, more hours and more hours off the clock at home. They, you know, they, they spend time studying and any job I've ever had in my whole life. I've always spent a lot of hours trying to better myself, better that job. Even when I wasn't at work, you know, I would study things to make my job better. When I was out of work, think about work. How could I do things better? How can I organize better? How can I do this? And that's, you know, people in our environment that, have that type of attitude generally excel and, and are rewarded much faster than those that don't. On the next episode of Swarfcast. I, I don't know if I'm going to hit it, but I've set this crazy goal to basically have eliminated myself by the end of this year where I don't have to be part of the day-to-day. Even if I hit the goals that I've set for myself this year, I'm still going to have to be there at about one to one and a half days a week. I still be there in the office um, to solve problems and stuff, but to be off day-to-day management of the business entirely by the end of this year and totally on working on the future of the business. 